0: Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. Today we'll be discussing the upcoming election in Aotearoa, New Zealand. My guest today is James Mulrennan. James is the author of The Overhang, where he analyzes New Zealand elections. Hello, James. Kia ora. New Zealand electors have now started going to the polls with election day on October 14. Labor has now been in power for six years, as the leading party in a coalition government for three years, and then with a one-party majority since 2020. The 2020 election was unique, producing the only one-party majority government since the introduction of the mixed-member proportional voting system in 1996, and polls since then have made it pretty clear that it won't be repeated. Jacinda Ardern stepped down as Prime Minister earlier this year and was succeeded by Chris Hipkins. Yet Labor hasn't been able to recover in the polls and indeed has been dropping further. James, do you see any prospects for Labour staying in power after this election?
1: I think there is still a a prospect of them returning to power, but I think those chances are slim and have been getting slimmer by the day. Depending on when you look at it there, and we'll come on to this in a bit, but the the left block as a whole are sort of seven to four points behind the right wing block. Either a a shift in the polls or a a polling miss of that scale wouldn't be completely unprecedented in New Zealand context um so in uh, 96 the first and election and most recently in 2020 um Labor did do significantly better on polling but sort of on average the polls have been sort of broadly accurate in New Zealand I think probably the, the best analogy for an Australian audience is perhaps the 2019 federal election where Scott Morrison was seen as pulling off an upset win um It'll probably be slightly more surprising than that, but it's sort of something of that order for Hipkins and Labor to make a comeback from
0: here. So I've noticed in the polls that generally the major parties haven't been doing as well. It's not like Australia where the major party vote is at a record low. Now that probably was around 2002 when Labor did respectively, but the National Party was at their low point. But the major party vote had climbed since then and now it's kind of not quite at two thousand and two levels, but down quite a bit. In particular, the Labor vote was—it's about fifty percent the last election, and now they're in the kind of mid to high twenties.
1: What was unusual about the most recent situation compared to sort of two thousand and two, or in Labor's case, sort of two thousand and eleven, was a, an, an idea for them is that both the major parties doing poorly at the same time rather than one of the major parties sort of collapsing and shedding its more peripheral support either to the the extreme or the center so i think that dynamic was something we hadn't seen here since the very first mmp election when it sort of looked for a while like labor may have been replaced as the the party of the center left but that has eased back somewhat. Um, one of the more recent trends in polling we've seen is that National have been rising, but largely at the expense of the ACT Party, who was sort of their natural coalition partner to the further right. So that sort of has seen the support on the right consolidate somewhat, whereas support on the left has remained split between Labour, the Greens, Te Pāti Māori, um, and to a lesser extent, New Zealand first, although that's complicated. The trend we've seen since... Ardern resigned, as you mentioned earlier in the year, just to provide a bit of context is Chris Hipkins, who was the Minister of the COVID response here, um, took over as as Prime Minister in January, saw a a small kind of honeymoon lift of a few points in the polls um, and sort of did bring Labour back into a close contest with National. But then since about May through a a series of issues, and they have just been on a a fairly consistent slide from the, the start of this year to where we are now.
0: Before we go into what the potential shape of the government is, I just want to run through what the parties are a little bit because in the early days of MMP, New Zealand had a bit of a phenomenon of parties breaking apart quite regularly, new parties forming, new parties breaking to parliament. It's quite consolidated now. There are five parties in parliament now and a sixth one that has been in parliament for most of the recent decades but is currently out of parliament. So Labor and National are the major parties We can go through them quickly. And the Greens, I think, largely occupy a similar space to what the Australian Greens do. And then ACT, just explain for a moment who ACT is and where they fit in the spectrum.
1: Yeah, so as you say, I think National Labor and the Greens will all be familiar to anyone from a kind of Anglo democracy. But yeah, so the ACT Party formed originally um, out of the Labour Party, some rebel MPs from the Labour Party, but they very much occupy the sort of furtherest right extent in terms of economic policy in New Zealand's parliament. I think traditionally that's meant more of a kind of neoliberal libertarian orientation, sort of people who believed in the, the market revolution of the 1980s and wanted it carried further. But recently there has been sort of more of an adoption of kind of the Republican model of pairing that economic libertarian uh, policy with sort of more conservative social views. So very much foregrounding a kind of more punitive approach to justice policy. Um, And the other major plank that's sort of been a consistent point of tension on the right wing in New Zealand politics has been Indigenous rights or the relationship between the Crown uh, and iwi Māori, what the place of the Treaty of Waitangi is in in New Zealand's politics, um, and obviously the, the ACT Party have sort of adopted an approach where they don't want to see that being as prominent as it has been. To the extent that the Greens are the party of the further left, it's reasonably easy to see ACT as the party of the further right at this point.
0: Speaking of Indigenous affairs, uh, you then have Party Maori, and for anyone who hasn't paid attention to New Zealand politics for about five years, they seem to have kind of changed their position because when they were founded, they were partly a split out of the Labour Party and they took support from the Labour Party, but then they formed an alliance where they took ministerial roles in the last national party government. But it seems like now they're a bit more clearly siding on the left than they were then.
1: It's difficult to classify them as sort of a a left or a right or a centre party on a, a kind of Western model fundamentally what their split from Labour was about and kind of what is the uniting forces, they are an indigenous sovereignty movement. So they are about working within kind of the Maori political world. In some ways you could see it as sort of, they're open to making arrangements with either national or Labour. And as you mentioned, they did have a confidence and supply agreement. So not a formal coalition, but an agreement to support the national party during the key era. But I think recently, given some of what I was saying about where AT and New Zealand First, the positions they've taken up on treaty issues does at the moment kind of quite clearly align to Party Māori with Labour and the Greens in terms of coalition formation. But I wouldn't yet simply look at that as them being a left-wing party generally. There are certainly um, some MPs who who have fairly left-wing views, but there is a diversity of opinion in the party generally. And I guess the other... Major factor with where they line up is that Chris Luxon, the leader of the National Party, has ruled out doing any kind of coalition or confidence and supply deal with them following the election. So I think it'd be unlikely that they'd end up in government together, and especially that would be difficult given the, the position that New Zealand First and Act National's other likely coalition partners have taken.
0: So New Zealand First, who are currently out of parliament, they've been around since the early 90s. They've actually been, this is the second time they've been knocked out of parliament. They've come back previously. Uh, Winston Peters is their leader, and they're kind of hovering on the edge of getting back into parliament. We'll talk a little bit more about how the electoral system works in a bit, but where do they position themselves in the political environment now?
1: I think for an Australian audience probably a, a Bob Cater or a Pauline Hansen is the best parallel to draw so they are Firmly a, a kind of socially conservative uh, party. They initially formed by splitting out of the uh, National Party in the early 90s. Their leader, still today, uh, Winston Peters, left National in opposition to some of their uh, policies in the, the early 90s. So, whilst they're quite socially conservative in terms of economic policy, they are more interventionist and sort of do, you know, support kind of state support for particular initiatives. They're sort of largest. I guess, policy win in the Ardern government that they supported in its first term. was sort of a provincial investment fund um, for sort of areas of rural New Zealand. Very much a personality-based party that um, their leader, Winston Peters, is a kind of perennial character in New Zealand politics and the New Zealand first brand is very much associated with him personally. And I think that probably the other thing that has been happening this time around, touch on the final group of parties, but... Uh, obviously there was a lot of kind of opposition to and protests about the vaccine mandates and lockdowns in New Zealand last year. Listeners may be aware there was a, an occupation of parliament grounds that sort of lasted for a month in early 2022. And more recently, uh, New Zealand First had been trying to tap into sort of that energy of a kind of general opposition to government mandates and adopting some of the sort of more fringe issues that we've seen overseas. So things like 15-minute cities or opposition to LGBT rights. So there's sort of a mixed bag there. But ultimately, New Zealand first, you've always got to say maybe in terms of who they would support. Peters has been in government with National once before in the 90s and then twice with Labour in the 2000s. So both the Clark government and the Ardern government. At the moment, Prime Minister Hipkins has ruled out any kind of arrangement with New Zealand first. So I think in all likelihood it will be some kind of agreement with National, but you can sort of never say for certain what these things.
0: Every other party we've listed so far has had multiple generations of leaders during the MMP era, right? They've all been um, not just about the personality and I think New Zealand First, that style of being a personal vehicle for a particular charismatic politician, it's quite common here. We see it a lot with minor parties in Australia. There was other vehicles like it in the past, but he's pretty much the one left in that he founded the party in the early 90s and he's led it through all those terms of government and he's still leading it. I don't know what it would look like without him.
1: It's difficult to say. There's sort of been multiple pretenders to the throne over the years, but all of them have either come to some kind of disagreement or have gone on to other things. Yeah, as you say, the sort of personality-driven parties were more common in the early MMP era. So the progressives, which is a left-wing party led by Jim Anderton, a centrist party led by Peter Dunn, the sort of these similar vehicles, but... That's become less the norm over time and you've sort of got these established ideological lanes occupied by these days the Greens or Act and um, Te Māori rather than these sort of individual attempts to advance your career. And again, for all you can say about him, Peters does have a certain charisma and the sort of reputation as a kind of comeback king or a, a maverick.
0: There's a lot of other parties running. I think only one I want to touch on very briefly is the Opportunities Party. We'll mention them again when we talk about electorates, but uh, they're probably the only other party that's never been in Parliament before that's probably worth mentioning.
1: Yeah, and I think, uh, again, to draw the Australian analogy, the Teal candidates that played quite a prominent role in the the most recent Australian election, I think the approach Top have taken in their current generation is very similar. That's sort of reasonably serious about climate action and broadly on the centre in terms of economic policy. But the electorate that their leader, Ralph Manji, is, is running in Christchurch, is sort of one of the affluent suburban electorates traditionally held by national. So they have been appealing to that kind of a crowd. And it's not less a party, it's sort of more to round out the picture, is there's sort of a this constellation of parties on the fringe right that, again, are trying to draw on that sort of anti-mandate, protest energy. Ultimately, they sort of come to nothing. I think there's 10 different parties or alliances of parties all drawing on a similar base there. So while collectively they're probably 2-3% of the vote, when you divide that by 10, it doesn't add up to much. So dominating headlines, but I think unlikely to play any kind of real role after the
0: election. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the voting system. So it's quite different to what we have in Australia. New Zealand never really went down the path of using preferential voting prior to MMP. It was first past the post, individual electorates, Uh, Those electorates have mostly remained. There's 72 of them now, which conduct an election by first past the post. But then you have this other layer on top of list seats that are there to compensate for disproportionality in that first group. So people get two votes. They get an electorate vote and a party vote. And the party vote is a bit more important for deciding the shape of government in that the party's share of the total seat count is based on their party vote. And to get any list seats, you either need to win one electorate or you need 5% of that party vote.
1: Yep, no, you've got it. MMP, it just takes two ticks was the original slogan um, when it was launched here. So, you know, absolutely, the party vote is a couple of exceptions, the, the far more important one. The way that interacts between the electorate seats and the overall party list, say a party gets 50 seats and wins 30 electorates, the first 30 seats that they get out of that 50 seat entitlement will be taken by those electorate MPs and then the remaining 20 will be drawn from their party list. New Zealand's a bit unusual for MMP systems out there in that we operate with a single nationwide list so there's sort of no regional groupings and there's just one list per party per country. It's a closed list system so the reason we call it the party vote is you just vote for the party who you want to support there and then the The second vote is the the local electorate vote and still operates on an FPP system. And generally, up until honestly, probably this election has very much been national versus Labour contest in almost all cases. The exception to that being there are seven separate electorates that are the Māori seats, which if you're of Māori descent, you can choose to be on either the general list or a a kind of dedicated Māori list. There are seven seats there and those traditionally were dominated by the Labour Party, brief interlude with New Zealand First in the mid-90s. But since the formation of the Māori Party in 2005, those have very much been a Māori Party versus Labour Party contest.
0: Just to clarify it, not every voter who's of Maori heritage votes on the Maori roll. Some of them choose to vote on the general roll. And you get a chance like every five years or so to to kind of switch between them, but it doesn't happen all the time. They're meant to be roughly the same number of voters. And I would also say there are also Maori MPs who are elected on the party list as well, right? So both pools of votes, Maori roll voters and general roll voters both contribute to that party vote as well. With the Maori party, they have a chance, and they've done it in the past, of winning more electorate seats than their entitlement of a total seat count across the country. And when that happens, you get an overhang. So can you run us through how an overhang works?
1: Yeah, it's fairly straightforward.
0: The name of your Twitter account?
1: Yes, this is where the name of the account came from, um, because I couldn't think of a better one and 120 was already taken. So effectively what happens is if there's an overhang, so say you're only entitled to three seats, but you win seven electorates, they just add four seats to parliament in that case. So the size of the parliament just increases. It hasn't really mattered historically for the balance of power. Um, I think the largest... Overhang we've had in the past was in 2008, where there were two additional seats. It is an unusual feature of New Zealand's system and one that does make us vulnerable overall to decoy lists being run. So effectively, a party choosing to run only for the party vote with a partner party who only runs for the electorate vote. The independent review of New Zealand's voting system, which has been going on recently sort of did identify the issues that the overhang could cause and have sort of proposed an approach that wouldn't lead to that problem. Um, But it is kind of a vulnerability that no party's ever decided to exploit, but there is a risk. There's a very slight chance that we could see a major party causing an overhang at this election. With the National Party doing as well as they are on the party vote, they could end up winning more electorate seats than they're entitled to, especially because the vote on the left will be split, even as the candidate vote will be split between Labour and the Greens. Part of the problem is we increase the number of electorates as time goes on in line with population, but we don't increase the size of parliament overall. So there are fewer and fewer list seats available to restore that proportionality. So I think, again, it's sort of a, an outsider chance, but it could be something we see happen if national candidates do particularly well, and national doesn't do quite as well on
0: the party vote. Can I dwell on that? Because that's quite an interesting phenomenon that I think has some parallels of what we've seen in Australia, where traditionally in the past, if a party has been doing badly, they've just done badly full stop because the other major party is doing better. So they do really badly on the electorate list. What's happening right now is the national party as a party on their own, is not doing amazingly well. But the overall right block is doing well because they've got quite a strong partner or maybe two partners. And in that way, it has a bit of a parallel with Australia where Australian Labor was at like record low levels to win government. But in the Australian context, they benefited from preferences. In the New Zealand context, they would benefit from forming a coalition with ACT. But either way, the major party part of the winning coalition is a bit smaller And that means in the single member system, whether it's what we use for the House of Reps or the electorate seats in New Zealand, they still do really well. But because New Zealand has that compensatory element, if they were losing those votes to Labor, they would lose seats with it. But because they're losing those seats to Act, they're not going to lose as many seats with it. And they might still beat Labor in most seats, right? Because Labor's doing terribly. And if it's a four-way contest between Labor, National, Green and Act, they could win with a much lower vote and still like when landslide proportions of electorate seats. And that's kind of where this scenario happens, right?
1: There is a fairly strong correlation between the candidate vote and the party vote, which I think often gets missed in a lot of the coverage that sort of there's this idea of, uh, you know, these Labour candidates will hang on even though the Labour party vote has has fallen away. We don't see that in practice. Um, four major party voters voting Um, Two ticks, so party vote national, candidate vote national, is still the norm. But there's enough people who don't that it's not a a one-to-one comparison. And then where you've got these high proportions of ACT voters, New Zealand First voters, Green voters, they do still, you know, people are aware that it's an FPP system. So if you're a, a Green voter in a National Labour seat, You'll probably vote for the Labour candidate, but it tends not to be as strong uh, an association. You know, you will see Green candidates still getting 15, 20 percent of the Green vote, even though there's very limited chance that the Greens will actually win that seat. So it creates this dynamic of whether the right block is larger or the left block is larger, but it's biased towards the major party. Yeah, there's this kind of disjunct.
0: Can we briefly also talk about the coattail as well? Because the way it works is the proportionality is only calculated based on the votes of parties that qualify. You know, you could have a scenario where a party polls 4%, they don't win any seats, and effectively, you know, that 4% doesn't count when you're calculating proportionality. We saw it in Germany at one point where two different parties of the right polled four point something. And so there was almost 10% of the vote on the right that didn't get counted for proportionality. And it produced a situation where the right got a majority of the vote and the left got a majority of the seats. We have seen cases where the fact that an electorate seat qualifies you for parliament has meant that major parties have kind of let a minor party win a seat, that in open competition, they probably wouldn't have won.
1: Maybe run through that step by step. To qualify for List seats, there's two ways you can do that. One is to pass a 5% party vote threshold relative to other MMP systems. That's quite a high threshold. And parties, even medium-sized parties have frequently missed it. I think New Zealand first got 4.7, 4.8% of the vote in 2008, and so didn't qualify for any seats. But the other way to qualify is by winning at least one electorate seat, which you then on your coattails bring in a proportionate number of MPs. So say you win one electorate seat, would be entitled to three list seats, you get those two extra MPs with you. That's probably the main way in which electorate races do affect outcomes in New Zealand. All the parties that have been in Parliament other than Labour or National have relied on that to preserve their position in Parliament at some point since the introduction of MMP. And so, yeah, it does have a – especially where they've seen a decline in their support, you know, as the Greens sort of have seen move back to labour or Act support moving back to national. It has quite a material impact there. Yeah, in terms of deals, often the way it's operated in the past is um, both for Act and then more recently for the Greens and Auckland Central. The minor party has staged a an earnest campaign for the candidate vote Without a nod or uh, the approval of the Allied Major Party. So that happened with ACT in Epsom, which is sort of a very affluent uh, seat in Auckland in 2005. And then subsequent to that, after ACT had established their position there, the slang term here for it is having a cup of tea with someone, which is a callback to when John Key, the then National Prime Minister, sat down for a cup of tea with then ACT leader and Epson electorate candidate, John Banks. And so that's sort of become the terminology for it. So they do these deals where to to secure that additional um, portion of of the vote, you, you get this anchor seat, which can then bring in additional MPs on your coattails.
0: So they don't usually withdraw from the contest, the major party, but often it might be the the major party candidate has quite a good position on the list. So you don't have to worry that they're going to lose their seat because we haven't talked about that, but you can run for both electorate and list. And if you don't win your electorate seat, you can qualify for the list. So national... can can be comfortable that the national candidate will get re-elected even if they don't vote for them. Um, And then you have that cup of tea moment where it's kind of like it's a nod and a wink saying, yeah, this person's okay. This is your permission. And, I mean, I did analysis previously on those Epson votes. Because both votes are on a single piece of paper, you can analyse the combinations of votes. And Epson you often found like the national candidate for the electorate their electorate votes mostly came from Labor and Greens voters who were trying to undo the deal and elect the national member, as well as some Nats who just always vote Nats and just ignored the deal. So it's really fascinating. ACT has grown beyond that now. And I don't get the impression that the Greens are that worried right now about relying on Chloe Swarbrick's seat in Auckland Central, but it's a nice to have bonus.
1: Yeah, I think the last time the Greens had won an electorate seat was in 1999. So going back a fair ways now where their leader, Jeanette Fitzsimmons, they did rely on her winning that seat. But that is since then, the party is reasonably reliably sort of somewhere between six and I think 14% um, of the, the vote, whereas previously ACT sort of had been hovering below that 5%, but they now seem to have a much more You know, again, like the Green's do, robust level of of their own support to rely on.
0: And one more thing about the mechanics of the electoral system that I find really interesting as well is because it's that five percent national vote, there's a lot less regionalism in New Zealand politics. Like theoretically, you could imagine an independent contesting one seat and trying to win, but that doesn't really happen. Generally, when minor parties win electorate seats, they are national minor parties. Um, but, you know, often in Australia, you see a party focus on winning one Senate seat in one state, and there's no way to do that. I mean, you and I have discussed before how different it would be if you had a voting system where, like, you divided the country up into, I think it was super rugby zones or whatever. Yeah. So you wouldn't need a threshold, but you could win 5% in one area and win one seat without doing it elsewhere. And that's how it works in a place like Scotland. But because it's that national basis, the 5% line becomes this quite all or nothing position. And it kind of discourages regionalism, right? You don't get parties that are Christchurch. I mean, if they could win an electorate seat, they could theoretically exist. And obviously that is kind of how to party Maori works in that their focus is very much on Maori seats. But part of the
1: reason is structural, as, as you say, it's a single nationwide list. But I think the other reason behind that lack of regionalism is just New Zealand is a much smaller country than Australia. The kind of geographic patterns of support um, by and large more about urban, suburban, rural electorates rather than being regional. You do see some regional patterns. So New Zealand first uh, traditionally do very well in the upper North Island, haven't done so well further south. Um, Obviously inner city areas, unsurprisingly, the Greens do quite well there. But the The main version of of something like that that we do see is the the Māori Party running in the Māori electorates.
0: We don't know who's going to form government, but there are a few scenarios. We were talking before we started recording about how New Zealand has kind of been a a laboratory of developing new ways for multiple parties to work together in government. You know, we've seen a tiny bit of that in Australia when the Greens and Labor have had to work together, where you go beyond the traditional coalition, what we see with like the Liberals and the Nationals in Australia, where everyone's all in together, they agree on an agenda and they're kind of, they they are fully committed to each other. You see a little bit more diversity and variety in New Zealand, except in the current term, of course, but in previous terms.
1: Yeah, so it's it's sort of evolved where there's sort of different options on a menu or a, or a spectrum of kind of degrees of formality. We don't really have any true kind of enduring permanent coalitions like you see for the Nationals and Liberals in Australia. Um, the last party who, who did that was the Alliance, but they fell away in the 90s. So there's kind of broadly two forms that these governing arrangements fall into. One is a, a formal coalition deal. Um, which I think we've seen in 96 between National and New Zealand First, between the Alliance and Labour on the left in, in 99, um, and then again in 2017 between Labour and New Zealand First. So that is where both the major party and the minor party in coalition have ministers who are in cabinet and are subject to the obligations of cabinet collective responsibility. But the kind of strictures that those arrangements put on ideologically diverse parties with different agendas early on in MMP and particularly in the the first MMP government under Jim Bolger and Winston Peters and then Jenny Shipley and Winston Peters, did lead to these kind of irresolvable tensions that we needed to evolve mechanisms for allowing that disagreement to occur between parties governing together. So what we've seen develop since then is what's called a confidence and supply agreement. So this effectively is the minor party agrees to support the major party on matters of confidence and supply. So effectively helping them survive confident votes and then helping pass the budget or any other supply bills. So that, in exchange for that confidence in supply, they'll be given particular policy concessions or particular ministries, but those ministers will sit outside of cabinet. So they'll have particular responsibilities within their area. So say the Greens often will take the Ministry of Climate Change or the Ministry of Conservation. Te Party Māori take the Ministry of Māori Affairs, those kinds of things. So they will participate in cabinet discussions in matters that relate to their portfolios, but they sit outside of cabinet generally. What that allows for is wider freedom to disagree with the major party on particular areas that are outside the scope of their agreement. And it kind of helps, yeah, navigate that difficulty of a kind of Westminster cabinet system operating with, with a multi-party electoral system.
0: Let's talk about the options that are on the table because one of the things that I think has evolved a bit a little bit more in New Zealand, you see it in some like Nordic countries where there are lots of parties in parliament. They all have their own agendas, but they kind of sort themselves into two blocks. You kind of know that if you vote for that party, you're helping a particular group of parties form government. You know, you vote for the Greens, then that's going to help Labour take the prime ministership. It seems like New Zealand's kind of evolved a little bit in that direction. But let's talk first about national and act as the kind of default assumption right now for the next government. It's probably four broad outcomes we could
1: see in terms of these these arrangements. So we'll start with what was until recently the most likely outcome. So national and their natural kind of partner, the Act Party. Whether that would be as a formal coalition, the confidence and supply agreement I've described remains to be seen, as sort of a, a subject of negotiation between the um, the respective parties. ACT did float a, a novel constitutional idea that they would give confidence but not supply. Which, whilst I admire the creativity, is kind of a meaningless phrase. If you you know if you don't agree to vote the budget, you are effectively saying that you'll vote the government down. But I think, in all honesty, they don't have the and the same for, for the Greens with Labour, they, they don't have that strategic ambiguity or um, as much bargaining power. So whatever form that takes, it would be Act Supporting National. The next likely structure you'd see would be National Act requiring New Zealand First support to govern. Again, the exact form that that takes um, remains to be seen. We had a very similar situation in 2017, where effectively New Zealand First got to pick who got to be government. They went into a formal coalition with the Labor Party, with the Greens only being part of a confidence and supply agreement with ministers outside of Cabinet. It could be that a similar situation occurs with National and Act, although exactly who gets left out in the cold probably depends.
0: So before we move on from that example, what I find interesting there is like Labor and the Greens 2017 get along better, probably have more in common than Labor in New Zealand first, certainly than Greens in New Zealand first. Um But because New Zealand First have that flexibility of movement, and maybe they have a bit less now because Hipkins has ruled them out, but they have the ability to manoeuvre, it kind of gives them more influence and allows them to drive a harder bargain. And I think that could happen again with ACT and National, right? Even though, if, if anything, because ACT is closer to National and doesn't have another option on the other side, National can take ACT a little bit more for granted than they can New Zealand First.
1: Yeah, and I think part of the reason that arrangement came about in 2017 was because of disagreements between New Zealand First and and the Greens, and effectively New Zealand First would not be in a coalition with them. There's a lot of personal animosity between Winston Peters, the leader of the New Zealand First Party, uh, and David Seymour, the leader of the ACT Party. They're contesting for sort of quite in some ways similar electoral bases so yeah you could absolutely see a similar situation or alternatively what john key's government did in the early 2010s was didn't have a coalition agreement with any other party but had confidence and supply agreements with multiple other partners so at united future into party maori could see something similar operating here. I think it would be a surprise to see a New Zealand First and Te Pāti Māori supporting the the same government. Some kind of tripartite arrangement between ACT National and New Zealand First is probably bordering on the most likely outcome at this point. We have seen the ACT Party decline over the last month or so to the point where I think on current polling, National and ACT would be just short without New Zealand First. Fourth possible outcome, although I think this is distinctly unlikely, would be New Zealand First supporting a, a Labour-led government. I think just given the fact that that government would involve the Greens to Pāti Māori, and New Zealand First, all entering into some kind of arrangement, given the differences that have developed in some pretty key policy areas over the last well six years since the 2017 deal was done, the term coalition of chaos gets thrown about quite a bit. And I think it's somewhat unfair, but I think the odds of that occurring when the National Act um, New Zealand first option will be more stable. Yeah, makes it fairly unlikely.
0: The polling now suggests Labor plus Greens plus NZF is about where it was total in 2017, but the Greens make up a much bigger share of that block and Labor makes up a much smaller share, right? So it would be harder for Labor to do a primary deal with New Zealand first and kind of leave the Greens off on the side.
1: Yeah, and I think that then brings in one of the complicating dynamics with the, the Green Party is that their party membership um, get to have a, a vote on any um, potential coalition or competence and supply deal. And so I think the ability to get them across the party base is much further to the left than probably the, the Green Party support as a whole. So I think it would be challenging um, <laughs> to find some kind of arrangement that would work in that case. Yeah, New Zealand first, Labour, the Greens, and Te Party Māori. Um, pretty unlikely, but again, with New Zealand first, never say never. And then the final kind of realistic outcome would be a, a three party arrangement between Labour, the Greens, and Te Party Māori. I think similar to National Enact, I think, you know, I'm sure there'd be some wrangling and some negotiation, but I, it would be a probably fairly stable arrangement. At this point, the odds of Labour being able to govern with only the support from the Greens. It's just so remote, like the polls would need to be off by sort of well more than a historic misses for, for that to be a prospect.
0: And it would need New Zealand First to probably get knocked out of parliament, right?
1: Yeah, and I think that question of whether New Zealand First makes it in is probably the most important factor for what outcome we're likely to see. Currently, there's sort of 5 6% in the polls. They traditionally do a little bit better on election day than they do on polling. So I think on balance, they're likely to be returned, but it's by no means certain. So I think that that uncertainty of whether they make it into parliament is really drives the shape of, of the likely government we're going to see. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that the Opportunities Party, so the sort of TL-adjacent party we are talking about before, are seeking to contest uh, an electorate seat and qualify. It's looking unlikely based on polling that that could happen. So that's kind of the, the final bit in the mix of where that um, could form up.
0: Okay, so final question about electorate races, because I've always been very dismissive of them in New Zealand, outside of where they affect coattails and where they potentially create overhangs. They don't affect the total number. I remember an election a while ago, I think Jacinda Ardern was the losing candidate in an electorate race where it was coming down to the wire after election day. Everyone was focused on this electorate. And It made absolutely no difference to the final uh, identities in Parliament because whichever candidate lost that race was then going to fill a list seat and go into Parliament either way. Um, But I think we've talked a little bit about why it can matter a little bit, not so much to the count of seats in Parliament, but to the makeup of a party and how it might really make a difference to who's left of the governing Labor Party after this election.
1: Yeah so I think other than the impact it can have on parties qualifying for seats it really is about the internal dynamics within the party. Um, List selection is in most parties a fairly centrally controlled decision so your position on the list does depend on sort of your standing with the leadership parliamentary and otherwise of the party. Electorate candidates have a Effectively, an independent mandate from their local electorate. Deselection is vanishingly rare in New Zealand. I think it's happened once that I can remember in the sort of last twenty years. So, an electorate candidate has a much more secure place if they're in a um, a safe seat. It's been the source of most of those kind of fractures, or. Where parties have have broken apart, it's usually been centred around a candidate with a, a winnable electorate seat. There's no rules against that happening, but we won't go into that. So I think that's one way in which it matters is sort of the role individual MPs have and the security that they have. And I think in the other area and why we've seen both the Greens and ACT continue to, well, the Greens to start pursuing electorate seats and act, starting to pursue electorate seats beyond just that, that one anchor seat, is electorate MP offices come with additional resources, additional profile, additional standing in the community. Um, And so it does Where you've got parties who have a particularly strong base in one kind of electorate or one area, it does kind of build up the resources that they have there. So the Greens have gone from contesting one seat in earnest in 2020 to, I think, contesting five in earnest. There's probably only two or three of them they have a realistic prospect in. But I think for those reasons of building up the, the base and the resources that come with it, and similarly, uh, the ACT Party um, have been extending the, the seats they're running into, again, to build that independent organic base outside of the control of their aligned major party, I think, is the strategic thinking there.
0: So it may not make any difference to the seat count in 2023, but in terms of a long-term Encroaching on the major party on their side of politics, it can make a big difference.
1: I think that's the thinking. Um, voting's already started, results in the same night as you've got the referendum on The Voice next uh, Saturday. So it will be an exciting time on both sides of the Tasman.
0: So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room podcast. Thank you, James, for joining me. Thanks, James. Thanks, man. On election night, uh, it's also referendum night here. I'll be on ABC Radio, so maybe I can find a chance to chip in with a little bit about New Zealand politics in between all the coverage of our referendum. And I mean, your polls will close two hours before um, we start on the East Coast, so maybe there'll be a brief opportunity to talk about New Zealand results before we get anything from Australia.
1: The results you'll get come in incredibly quick here because they start the count of the early vote before polls close so within honestly half an hour of polls closing half the vote will be counted
0: <laughs> you can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice if you like the show please consider rating or reviewing us on itunes you can follow the tally room on mastodon at tally room mastodon.au or like us on facebook and james your twitter account is
1: so it's overhang underscore aonz on twitter
0: i highly recommend it So this podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Chris DeBro for writing the music here in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.